Welcome to the Myatt & Co podcast, Listen In. Here, Mary and colleagues talk to interesting people about interesting stuff going on in schools. We hope you enjoy it. Hello, and I'm Jill Berry. I'm very pleased to be here with Adam Robbins, who wrote a brilliant book this year, Middle Leadership Mastery, a Toolkit for Subject and Pastoral Leaders. So hello, Adam. Thanks for being with us. Hi, thanks for having me. If you want to start by just telling us a little bit about your professional journey up to this point, uh, how you found yourself in your current role and how it's going so far. Um, yeah, so I've been teaching a fair while now, since about 2003. Um, I spent first half of my career trying to avoid promotion like the plague. Um, I was a big fan of the attention of the classroom and, you know, being with the students and things like that. Uh, so, yeah, I've been teaching science for a fairly long time. Um, and then I got really interested in sixth form and A-level. That's always been an area that's a real passion of mine. So I uh, became a, a key stage five coordinator back when the job was like a thousand pounds and you just had to make sure the exam entries were in and that was in the job. And then slowly, you know, as leadership kind of evolved in education, um, my role kind of grew and then I've been head of science uh, for about seven years, I think. Um, and uh, I found that, you know, really, really fascinating. Uh, Give me an opportunity to learn lots of different things and kind of get to know schools and how they run uh, at a lot deeper level than maybe um, if I'd gone a different route. I always wanted to become an AST when I was young, uh, but those kind of roles uh, don't really exist anymore. And I'm, I'm kind of glad of that now, I think, because I find the variety of the, the head of department role much more kind of rewarding, I think, than just doing one specialist role all the time. Mm. There may be people watching this who actually have never heard of ASTs, advanced skills teachers. Um, I think these days lead practitioner may be a similar kind of role. Probably, um, yeah. You think, yeah. But you're enjoying being head of department. Yeah, and I think it's a role that you can kind of bend to your personal preferences a little bit so although I'm the head of department I was I I like to spend most of my time focusing on the kind of teaching and learning of the department and I use part of my team to take away some of the more logistical aspects whereas other people maybe they can pivot it and they do most of the logistical stuff but then they have a lead practitioner on their team that deals with the uh, kind of day-to-day teaching learning kind of strategy stuff maybe so yeah so I quite like that idea that it's it's quite flexible yeah, can depend on the context and also the team, the, the strengths of the people that you're leading. So oh, what brought you to um, this book? What caused you to write this book at this stage of your career? Um, I, you know, I have to give a big shout out to lockdown, I think, uh, you know, without the kind of enforced uh, time to myself, I may not have um, actually ever got down to writing it down. And, and I have to be, and this is not to be disparaging to people that are involved in these things, but um, I, uh, I spent 2019 and 2020 um, uh, seconded onto my school's senior leadership team uh, because I was going through the MPQSL and um, I attended the face-to-face, it was still then because the, well, you know, the pandemic hadn't happened. Uh, I attended the sessions and I was sitting in one of the sessions and I came in with these expectations that it was going to teach me all the things that n- no one had ever taught me so far about how schools work. You know, I thought they were going to go into, 
you know, um, maybe a little bit more about the kind of nuances of school systems and things like this, because when I looked around, it seemed like everyone knew what they were doing. You know, my school is uh, uh, an improving and successful school with lots of people with expertise. Um, but I had no idea how they learned these things. I assume they went on courses and learned them. And uh, I came away from the process uh, being a little bit frustrated by how generic things were. And I can understand that, I suppose, because they have to create a broad church that primary and secondary and subject specialists and pastoral can all fit under the same qualification back then um and i just started writing a blog and it was a kind of a ranting blog about how um why would why can't i find the piece of information i wanted and uh then the blog got bigger and longer as i started kind of listing the piece of information i thought people needed to know um and then i got convinced by a few people uh at the beginning of lockdown that it should maybe be a book and uh, so I was going to do it as like a kind of ebook PDF thing that I was going to put on my uh, blog. And then when I started showing people some early drafts, they were like, you should you should send it to some people to read and everything. And then so I sent it out and people came back and they were very, very uh, positive about it. And they thought it was something that maybe people find really useful. And so then I just devoted all my spare time to trying to gather as much information on all the chapter titles that I wanted, talk to people, get them to, um, you know, really kind of make sure everything I was writing was as technically accurate as possible, but also kind of being able to be understood uh, by people that maybe don't have as much experience in these areas. Um, yeah. So, you know, uh, it was one of those confluence of events, really. I never really thought of myself as someone who would um, write a book, but it was the right time, right place, I suppose. Good. And you're pleased with it and you're proud of it. Yeah. Yeah. I was really, when it first came out, I was really um, worried. I was really worried that someone would read this and like highlight one sentence and be like, uh, you know, this isn't true. Um, but no one's done that. So that's been, all, that's been my, my main <laughs> relief. No one's really, I think the only um, major kind of nitpicking I've had is uh, the gender bias of the word mastery apparently is something that I didn't consider um by certain areas of twitter were keen to um tell me that maybe should have been a different word but you know i like the alliteration with middle um and so we're you know but generally i've been really pleased you know people that have read it and reviewed it have um been really really positive about it in general um it's been really interesting because obviously i still work in a school and i, I didn't go around you know with a, uh, saying i'm making a book and things like this so people uh, found out about it. I, you know, I gave a few copies to people that helped me along the way. Um, and people have come up to me and be like, is this, this part of this chapter, is this when me and you did this? And I wrote the book way before that they even worked at the school, uh, in some cases, cause some of the, you know, it's kind of a, a, a an ongoing process. It took many years to do, but it's, so it's really fascinating how people, you know, see themselves in it um and you know um think you know so that that's been really interesting um i think probably the best thing has been um i get kind of uh, direct messages on twitter from people that have said you know i bought your book and i read it and um i've got an interview coming up and i want to ask you what you think about this and then they'll be able to get back to me and say they've kind of secured their first mm -hmm. like head of department post or or head of year post that's that's really good news I, that really makes my day when I get those kind of messages 
Yeah, I found the same. It's 2016 I wrote um, Movington from Deputy to Head, and I get messages now from people I've never met. And sometimes they say I didn't get the job, but actually I went into the interview feeling better prepared or I, I felt more confident about my application. And it, it is it is very fulfilling. So you never quite know what the reach is going to be, do you, when you put it out there? And you do make yourself vulnerable when you put it out there. You don't know how people are going to respond. Um, but I've seen lots of very positive feedback and I have recommended it to so many people, Adam. And one of the things I spend a lot of time doing now is working with middle leaders either aspiring middle leaders or serving middle leaders often at an early stage of their career and just helping them think through how can I be the best middle leader I can possibly be and I recommend your book all the time so your ears must be burning on a regular (laughs) basis I'll stop sharing um the slides and come on to my next question um when you were putting the book together, were, were there any particular sections that really fired you up, the ones that you found most satisfying or rewarding or the easiest to write? Uh, yeah, like I think the bit that uh, came kind of naturally to me was uh, the teaching and learning chapter because I do quite a lot of work um, with a group called Cogsci Sci and we talk a lot about teaching and cognitive science quite a lot. Um, that was an area that I thought, oh, that'll be really easy. And I, you know, I, I pulled together some things I'd already done and some thoughts I had and then kind of fleshed it out and, um, you know, went to TLAC and went to some other places to build some uh, kind of summaries of things. And then I got offered, um, uh, Sue Gerard, who's a, who's a cognitive scientist, offered to proofread it for me. And she came back with a lot of comments, put it that way, lots of, you know, but it was really reassuring to know that, I was going to be using exactly the right terminology to make sure I wasn't misleading anyone. And I was up to date with the evidence, but you know, it, um, it was kind of one of those funny ones because it was probably one of the ones I wrote the quickest, but actually probably needed it the most, uh, editing. Um, but yeah, that bit was brilliant. And, um, I also really enjoyed writing the stuff on wellbeing, um, because it, it was kind of a bit special for me. because I got to sit down, uh, with my dad, who's, uh, you know, been a counselor in a large secondary school for like 30 years and uh, is like got great expertise of that. And normally I don't get a chance to really see him in that light. He normally is talking to me about sailing. Um, but this time, you know, he got to sit down and, and talk through all these ideas he had, you know, and how he uses these techniques so we could try and distill some of them into usable guides. Um, so those two are, yeah, pr- particularly proud of, I think. And anything that you found? tougher harder to write i think when i started the chapter on assessment i thought that was going to be really obvious and um i i learned a lot through writing that chapter Mm -hmm. i'm fortunate enough uh to have some really really knowledgeable friends and being able to talk to some people um and uh, that was one of those ones where um the, the the chapter started off the idea of the chapter stayed the same the idea that uh, most people don't understand assessment very well and especially don't understand the implications of the decisions they make and then the consequences of them in the conclusions. And um, the, the chapter came from a kind of frustration that people would trust end of topic tests maybe too much or assume, uh, you know, you could get a piece of work at a grade six level in year seven, you know, and those kind of things that crop up a lot when you hear people talking about um, assessment. And, but it ended up me having to delve right into, um, you know, modeling and computer programming and statistics and all these different things and learning lots and lots of different things. So I think that was the one that taught me the most. 
Mm. And I was, uh, you know, really benefit from a lot of other people's expertise in that area. But that's great. And it was how you brought things together. I mean, I felt the book was was very well researched. You'd done a lot of reading. Did you do quite a bit of reading in order to write the book or were you pulling together things that you read that you'd read before? I think um, I think I was probably pulling together quite a lot of stuff from the last three or four. I mean, my personal growth in the last four years has been huge compared to, you know, before I kind of got onto Twitter and started actively trying to make connections with people and sharing my own ideas and getting feedback. So, you know, there's definitely, if you look through the book, there's definitely like certain books that keep coming up that I keep referencing ideas from that definitely informed me. Um, I did a lot of work via Audible, you know, so I, mm-hmm. I, I cycle to work. So I would have the book, if the book was on Audible, I'd listen to it there and then I'd get to work and I'd kind of make notes and, and go back through. And um, I kind of listened to people's recommendations. So, uh, you know, if they were saying, if you're going to learn about assessment, you've got to read this. But if you're going to learn about curriculum, you've got to read Michael Young's original uh, work instead of just a kind of retreatment of it via another author. So you can you can talk about it authentically. So, yeah, there was a fair bit of reading and it's not something I naturally um, kind of gravitate to, especially technical readings and, and things like that. It's not a despite having a career as a scientist, it's not something that I'm uh, particularly strong at. So it was, it was good to kind of get the old highlighter out again and, and start trying to really piece things together. And maybe again, the pandemic is quite a good opportunity that I think people probably have done more reading in the last 18 months because they've just had a little bit more more flexibility. I hope you cycle yeah, safe, safe when you're cycling, listening to heavy books yeah, yeah. on Audible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not a problem. It's very, very, very residential area okay it's not like it's not like sea cycling to say the least no right fine um you mentioned curriculum then I want to just pick that up because one of the phrases that really resonated for me was your phrase curriculum is the most important area that you can be asked to lead on do you want to just tell us a little bit more about your thinking there Adam yeah so I think in some ways um like curriculum is something that kind of withstands the test of time so it's an opportunity for you to put something in uh, as far as kind of your ethos and values around the curriculum and kind of make them permeate every other aspect of the department or the year group or the or the team. And um, and then they can kind of stay there as a lasting kind of epitaph. Of, you know, a bit like how, you know, a stonemason who's working on a cathedral will know that that stone will be there long after they're gone. I think um, leaders that do a lot of work on curriculum know that, if they were to move on to a new role the next year, that that work would be the foundation that other people would pick up from because it does allow you to, you know, have impact on areas of teaching and learning philosophy, on assessment philosophy, of, you know, even timetabling, curriculum hour provision, all these different areas. And it gets you to, allows you to kind of weave your impact into every single student because you're really essentially um, curating the knowledge that you want the students to learn at each step of the journey so I just think it's that kind of foundational idea and I hear a lot of people when they talk about curriculum kind of describe it as an object uh, you know it's like a proper noun it's like I'm going to go work on the Thank curriculum you. and I think people need to start viewing it more as as that kind of more of a procedural idea and it's a process it's an evolving beast it's a it's a long-term journey um, and we kind of constantly cycle through it and kind of reflect through what we're doing and how that impacts our curriculum vision. 
Mm. I mean, I think the, the bogey word for the next few years is going to be implementation and yeah. enactment, isn't it? You know, they, people are going to take those terms and, and kind of take them in the wrong direction, as we sometimes do in education. Mm. Okay, something we might come back to there. So it's, a, it's, your, it's your cornerstone, if you like, in your cathedral and lots of other things actually yeah. emanate from that. Yeah. Your, your point earlier about about establishing a legacy in a way that people can build on. So strong leaders, when they do move on, the team they led grows stronger, not weaker, because you're not developing a culture of dependency where people are looking to you. And without your leadership, things fall apart. You're trying to establish and embed things that will that will live beyond your tenure. Um, and I think getting the best from people is, is a key part of that, building their capacity and confidence. And you do pick up this idea of the, the, the challenge of middle leaders just finding that right balance between respecting the professional autonomy of others, having trust and confidence in them, while at the same time providing the challenge and the guidance and the structure and the practical support, which enables people to be their best so that the team achieves the high standards you're all hoping for. Can can you talk more about what how middle leaders can try and achieve that balance? Because it's one of the most difficult things about leadership. It's so crucial. Oh, it's 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 so difficult. And I think one of the things that is really interesting for me is one of the things I've really learned over the last three or four years is that I'm not a very honest narrator. And none of us are. You know, we all have our own biases and we all have our own kind of um proclivities that we kind of view everything through so if I think about my team and and my opinion of how much um, autonomy they should have or how tight I should control them and then you put someone else in my place they can have a very very different view because it's all about their own personal belief structure as a philosophy of how tight you should be in what is the profession you know some people at one end are kind of like well, teachers are professionals, so they should make professional decisions and just be held accountable for those problems. And at the other end, it's, you know, teachers are essentially there to deliver my policy as it stands perfectly right, you know, every, more like a performance piece than a, than a kind of profession. Um, and so I think there's, that's often ignored sometimes that if, you, if people aren't aware of where they naturally sit along that kind of continuum, um, then getting that right becomes really, really hard because I'm definitely one of those people that would much rather um, have teachers be autonomous. And so my instinct is to give people autonomy. But I need to kind of rationally be my own kind of critical friend in that situation and, and, and pull myself back to the middle and kind of establish areas of clarity and tight control where they're needed um, because that's in everyone's best interest because some people don't don't thrive very well in that autonomy some people really do just like to be told what to do and once they know what to do they're more than happy to do it but if you leave them to make their own choices then they tend to uh, flounder in indecision and things like this and that doesn't necessarily mean they're a bad teacher it just means that i need to adapt my approach for each person to make sure i'm giving them uh you know the amount of freedom they need while still having kind of clarity so we talk about um, having principles instead of practices as much as possible where we can allow people to experiment because um, one of the things you have if you have too much tight control is you lack complete innovation um, and you don't have the idea to really develop 
any new ideas. You just have your ideas being done by everyone. So we want to try and encourage people to have some sort of freedom to experiment sometimes, but we want to build that on a really, really strong uh, and clear foundation of basic expectations, I think. And and then it's all about providing a really easy path. So making sure the resources are there that you want that are the best you can find and, and kind of imbue the ideas you want. And so that it's a path of least resistance to do the best thing. Um, but yeah, it's a real challenge, real challenge. And you, I think personally as a leader, people spend a lot of time, you know, looking in the mirror in those conversations or after those events thinking, did I handle that, you know, just right? Or, you know, um, you know, you have a bit of a friendly debate maybe with your line manager, especially if they're a, a, a different part of the spectrum to you about what the best thing to do is. And I think, as you mentioned there, sometimes different people that you lead need a slightly different approach, don't they? So it has to be, you have to lead in a way that's true for you, but you also have to have the relationships and the communication and the openness so that you are honest with each other. And, and I think sometimes middle leaders need to have fairly frank conversations one-to-one with people. You know, what do you need from me? Are you getting what you need from me? What are their perceptions of your leadership and do you need to, to adjust in some ways? Um, well, yeah, totally. Um, I had an instant, well, not really an instant, but a, a growing issue over the last couple of years with one of one of my team. And um, what happened is we just weren't on the same page of what we expected the role to be. Um, it was one of my uh, kind of team leaders, one of my um, people in my team that lead on um, Key Stage 4. And we were getting to a situation where because we lacked the clarity of communication about exactly what the job roles were, you know, I was make, I was doing their work because I wanted it to be done a certain way. And then they would be trying to do the same work. And, and it just, and in the end, we just had to sit down and go, look, this is not working. Okay. Where, where are we going to move on from here? Because we were constantly second guessing what each other's kind of agenda was. And so that clarity is really, really important. I think. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, The last question in this first half, then, Adam, the first section. Um, I really like what you said in the book about the power of managing upwards and about how you work not just with your team, but with the people who manage you and the senior leadership and and, the the school as a whole, really. Can you say a little bit more about how you think a middle leader can successfully manage upwards as well as managing the people that they're responsible for? Uh, yeah, so one of the things I didn't realize is some people see the phrase managing upwards um, as a kind of manipulation process, mm-hmm. as in kind of, you know, gaming your boss, essentially, to yeah. get what you want. Um, imagine a bit like Top Cat and that police officer. Um, but that's not what uh, I thought. Dribble, dribble, dribble. That's what we're Yeah, that's it. Um, my, um, my thing with this is all about spending time as a middle leader to kind of critically analyze your line manager and think what are their strengths and weaknesses how do they prefer to work um you know i've had probably five or six line managers uh you know in my uh, career and all of them have been different and all of them have been really really good at some things and some of you know but then none of them have been really good at everything because that's just really difficult to achieve um so you know it was more about looking at their skill set and thinking, how can I utilize their skill set? And then what gaps do they have that are going to impact me? So one of the things that's really, really important, I think, especially let's say people starting a new 
middle leadership position or they have a new line manager uh, coming in in September is does that line manager understand your subject? Well, probably not very well. So give them a document that explains all the really, really important things. You know, why do you need to have double lessons or why do you only assess at this point and this point in the year? All the things that they may be in the senior leadership team meeting and making decisions on that they need to know that information so that they can kind of represent you at that table. Um, so I think there's a kind of making sure there's no knowledge gap. And then there's about, you know, how do they work best? Some um, leaders have got promoted through the ranks through maybe a pastoral route. So maybe they don't have much experience of kind of the nuts and bolts of leadership. So they're maybe logistically not going to be as strong in those areas, but they may be brilliant at helping you with personnel issues or dealing with parents or all those other things that you can get them to support you on. Whereas others, um, you know, might have a heavy involvement in kind of timetable and curriculum. So it gives you an opportunity to uh, make some gains in those areas. It's just about you actually taking the time to think about them and not just react the way you always react. You know, some of them like to kind of put a cat amongst the pigeons and be a bit provocative in meetings. And, you know, um, I had one who uh, anything via email was always really, really extreme. Um, but then face to face, it was really easy. But, uh, you know, they would always push people's buttons in emails. So it's just about ad adjusting the way I work to make sure we had face to face conversations about the really nitty gritty things instead of kind of just pinging emails to each other and getting a bit riled up. And it's relationships and communication again, isn't it? Trying to get those relationships right so that they can give you the support and challenge you need to do the best job you can. Yeah, because, I mean, you're, you're both in the same boat, aren't you? It's not like they don't want you to be successful at the end of the day. Yeah, but it is difficult, as you say, because inevitably a senior leader line managing a number of different subject specialist areas will not be an expert. And then it's it's what they need to know and how you can help them. And I know that Mary Myers and John Thompson are doing some good work on oh, that. Brilliant. How can heads and senior leaders work with subject coordinators and leaders to mutual benefit? I'm going to round it off there, Adam, finish part one, and then we will get on to part two shortly. So thank you no very much. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are over 300 films and resources on the Myatt & Co website. Just go to www.myattandco.com.